Well, good morning. Glad that uh, you have made it here today. And it kind of begs a question, and that is this. How many of you have lived in a state north of Tennessee? I'd like you to raise your hands. Well, that probably explains a few things. <laughs> Welcome. And for those of you that are watching on the webcast, we're so delighted that we have that ministry for you. Just this week, we got a letter from a couple who live a great distance away. And they were thanking the church for the webcast because it's their worship experience. They've tried other churches, but they find it um, less than satisfactory. So their worship service is with you right now. And uh, they sent us some money to apply towards our webcast ministry, so we are grateful for that. Today we're going to be talking about a nation in trouble. We're going to go to the Bibles and we will find a nation in trouble and how God deals with that. We'll see several experiences along those lines. By way of introduction, I want to read a prayer by Billy Graham. Billy Graham is 95 years old now, and uh, what a representative of God he has been in his life. But here's a prayer that he has to our country. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We have exploited the poor and call it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and call it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it politics. We have coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from sin and set us free. Amen. A nation in trouble. Those of you who have been following along with us the last couple of weeks recognize that in the experience of the nation of Israel, they've come to Mount Sinai. While they were there, Moses went up into the mountain. He was gone for some time, over 40 days. And while he was gone in the presence of God, receiving the Ten Commandments, down in the valley or in the plain, the people created a golden calf and they began to worship. And their worship was not, uh, well, it was so filled with debauchery and lewdness that when Joshua, who was with Moses, when he, they came down the mountain, Joshua said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. And they had sinned before God. Moses came down the mountain. 
He threw the Ten Commandments down on the ground and, and they broke. He took the golden calf, he burned it, he ground it up, put it in the water, and he made the people drink it. Then he announced that God said God would not be with them anymore. They'd have to journey on by themselves. But God would provide an angel who would work uh, on their behalf, but God himself would not go with them. So the people were greatly, greatly mourning. That's the background for what we're going to study. Let's go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, we will read three verses, beginning with verse 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Israelites at this time were filled with sorrow, as I mentioned, and we'll study that in just a moment. And what has happened here is that God says to Moses, I'm going to show you my name. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. This is not the first time that that has happened. When we go back to Exodus chapter 3, we discover at the burning bush that God there also proclaimed his name. So let's go back to that section of the Bible, Exodus 3, and we have verses 13 and following. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And Moses, or excuse me, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. God introduced himself to Moses and told Moses to introduce him to the people as the self-existent one. I am that I am. <clears throat> he is saying he is eternal. He is uncaused, unconditioned, totally and completely self-sufficient, and he is all-powerful. It was descriptive of his power, yet it did not reveal anything about his character. What was his nature? So for the entirety of the experience of the Israelites who were in Egypt being delivered and brought to Sinai, they know God as eternal, uncaused, unconditioned, self-sufficient, and all-powerful. That's what they know of God. 
And we come to chapter 33 in the story that I talked about earlier regarding the golden calf, and we see that the results of the confrontation they have with Moses as, God, as Moses speaks for God and relates to them that God is very upset with them, we find that the Israelites are filled with sorrow. In fact, they're depressed. Let's read it. Verse 4. And when the people heard these grave tidings, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. It was so bad that Moses wouldn't even stay with them anymore. Did you notice that? Moses took his tent and he moved it a great distance from the encampment of the people. And he said, if anybody wants to talk to God, you'll have to go to my tent. And it was a great distance away. So the lesson was very clear to these people. God had left them. This great, all-powerful, almighty God, who is holy and will not bow down to sin at all, was angry at them. What do you do with a God like that? Well, <clears throat> they're depressed and they're discouraged. And so it's time for God to show another element of who he is to the people. It's important to note that the new revelation regarding God does not cancel the foundational truth about God. He is eternal. He is uncaused. He is unconditioned. He is totally self-sufficient. He always has been and always will be. And he is all-powerful. What we will read next does not diminish any of that. In fact, it just adds to it. It is not one or the other. This is in addition to it. And so I'd like for you to turn with me, first of all, excuse me, got ahead of my notes. <clears throat> it's because all of you folks who are normally here aren't here and it's throwing me off. I want to show you a pattern. This is a very important pattern. It's a pattern I've never seen before. But it's a pattern that has revolutionized my thinking, especially as it comes to how to share the gospel to other people. And the Israelites are experiencing the pattern. So let me show you the pattern, and then when we go back to their experience, it will make more sense. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we'll read just the th first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
God is introduced in the Word of God as being almighty. He pre-existed matter. He didn't need anything. He spoke it, and it happened. He created light, which many uh, physicists now consider light as the source of all energy. So God created energy. There was none before God did this. And so God is introduced to humanity as being that eternal one. Uncaused, unconditioned, self-sufficient, all-powerful, almighty God. But then we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7, different name. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Same God, same creation, but a different emphasis regarding the creation story. All-powerful God speaks, and the world is formed. Now, God is pictured as being in the dust of the earth, forming man with his own hands, creating man in his own image. There is a great picture here of intimacy and closeness. God formed man of the dust of the earth. And when he was happy with the way man looked, he held man. Bible says, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I believe it was done by a kiss. So the Lord kisses man, and man is alive. So you have a picture in Genesis 1 of this all-powerful, almighty God. In Genesis 2, you have a picture of God who is still all that, but yet he can be so compassionate, so intimate, so caring, and so close to his creation. We see that as well in the book of Revelation. Let's turn there. We will start in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We have a picture of God seated on his throne in heaven. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and the thrones I saw, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back." It's a powerful picture. God seated on the throne in great grandeur, so much grandeur that only a few words are used to try to even describe it. Lightnings flashing, thunderings, voices. 
And those beings that are there are all bowing down before the Almighty God. God who is eternal, uncaused, unconditioned, self-sufficient, and all-powerful. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, same God. He's still all-powerful. He's still who he always has been. But watch a little different flavor here. Verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Right there is a picture of God that is amazing. You might say it's the artsy side of God. He's got a city, and he's adorning that city like a bride adorns herself for a wedding. Now, I've had the experience in 34 years to do many weddings, and I've been impressed at how important that day is for a bride. They usually set the date in terms of weight loss from beginning now to then how much weight can I lose? Okay. So we got that going, and they're working on that for all that time period. Then there's the dress for them, and, and, and then on the day of, many times, they bring a hairdresser to the church, and they meet somewhere, and they spend however long that takes. They are adorning themselves. They're particular about it. They, they, it means a lot. The Bible is describing God that way. He's got this city. He's doing a whole city. Why? For us. He cares about those who are going to live in that city. It goes on, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. That literally means his tent. He will dwell with men. It's just the opposite of what Moses did. You want to see God? You got to leave camp. You got to get away from this group of people. God is going to set up his tent with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Watch what will happen. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God will put his arm around each of us. He will pull out his handkerchief and he will say, I remember that pain. Now let's cry. Let's cry together because I felt that pain with you. And when we're done, we'll never have to go back to this again because from here on it's pain-free. God drying our tears. God so intimately entwined in our lives that he knows our pains. God spoke and the world came into existence. He preexisted matter. He's always been. He always will be. He is a holy God who will not change in order to accommodate sin. Not going to happen. However, he is also a God that is con 
that is described as being so intimate. He kissed life into man. And in the end, he will personally dry the tears and comfort each one of us. What a powerful picture. Now let me share with you why that picture is so important. Let's go back to Exodus 34 and I'll begin to share with you. In verse 6, Exodus 34, verse 6, And the Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. The pattern in the scriptures is you have this almighty God. Then you have a picture of mercy. You have a picture of tenderness. You have an almighty God, then a picture of mercy and a picture of tenderness. In the experience of those Israelites, he was an almighty God. That's all they knew. And when they got in trouble with that almighty God, that's when God gave them a picture of mercy and of love and of tenderness and compassion. And here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I probably have been in error in some of the ways I've witnessed to people about Christ. And let me explain what I mean. How many of you have sought, like me, to emphasize the love of God when you talk to your friends and family? That's what I do. But you realize we may be wrong. The pattern in the scriptures is until you understand God is this all-powerful, mighty being whom you have to answer to, who cares how merciful and loving he is? We don't even care. And so in the Israelite experience, they're just cruising along, doing whatever they want with this almighty God until... Boom, they're confronted and they realize this almighty God is not going to allow them to be who they are and be in his presence anymore. Now they need something. And what do they need? They need his mercy. Prior to that, they didn't care. And so I'm wondering if God's cure for a nation is to confront that nation with the reality that he is God and they will answer for their lives. And in the knowledge of that, then they will seek him and find forgiveness. Well, that actually happened. I want to tell you a story. It's about a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah would be king of Judah for 29 years. He began his reign in the year 724, and it concluded in the year 695. Now, this is all before Christ, so that's why it's backwards. He was a good king. A little history will help here. First king was Saul, second king was David, third king was Solomon, fourth king was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a no-count. People didn't like him. Uh, A kind way to put it in modern vernacular, he was a punk. And so, 
10 tribes broke off and they started another kingdom and their leader was Jeroboam. So the kingdom of Judah was in the south, the kingdom of Israel was in the north. Jeroboam's king of the northern tribes, Rehoboam king of the southern tribes. Jeroboam was rotten to the core and every single king that followed him followed the same course. Not one king served God that was the king of Israel. In Judah, some did, some didn't. Some did, some didn't. It was up and down, up and down, up and down. Hezekiah was one of the good guys. He served God. When Hezekiah became king, the temple was in shambles. The previous kings of Judah had stripped it of its wealth. They had let it deteriorate because who cared about worshiping God? They had other things on their mind. And the nation didn't seem to care. So the temple just fell into deterioration. So Hezekiah came along. He says, we're going to rebuild that thing. We're going to fix it up. So they fixed it up. And he decided that we're going to go back to worshiping God the way God said to worship him. And that meant the number one most important event in the calendar year of the Jews was the Passover. The Passover was to be kept on the 14th day of Nisan, which was the first month of their calendar year. And that started them off. That was to remind them of their deliverance from Israel. That was to, to remind them of how salvation worked. Well, they're working on the temple, they're working on the temple, they can't get it quite done in time for the first month. And there's also another problem. It'd been so long since the priests had ever done a Passover, they had to rehearse and practice and study and figure out how you do that thing. And they were so far gone in their religious experience with God, they had to recommit themselves to the Lord. So the priests weren't ready, the temple wasn't ready, but the second month was coming and everybody agreed, we'll do the Passover in the second month. Now, in the year 722, two years before Hezekiah became king, the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom and took it captive. They left some people there. But all of the north and the east were gone. And those people were left with a king named Hoshea, who was a puppet king of the Assyrians. They are really in disarray. They've really, really been punched in the mouth, if you will. That's the kingdom that didn't serve God. They were Israelites, but they did not serve God. They got punished for it. Hezekiah comes along. He says, you know what? Let's invite them all. Let's invite the remnant. Have you ever heard that phrase? Let's invite the remnant and have them come and worship God at his temple the way we're supposed to. And so he's going to send letters to them and invite them to come. And that's what this story is about. So let's read it as we look again at a nation in trouble. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 
30. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. Apparently there were more people left over from those two tribes than any of the others. That they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the congregation in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time, because a sufficient number of priests had not sanctified themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the congregation. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Then the runners went throughout all the Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the commandment of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Return to the Lord. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to astonishment as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Judgment, mercy. Now, we see it happened here and we see that it's happening in the story we started to read. Now, I want you to turn back to Exodus 34, and we're going to look at verse 6. All this is to bring us to this point. Exodus 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. I looked up the word merciful in the Hebrew dictionary. And it means compassionate, full of compassion. And it goes on to describe, it is kind and gentle treatment of a wrongdoer. It is a willingness to forgive, spare, or help. It is an act of divine love. So God had confronted the Israelites with the reality of their sin. They were depressed, they were discouraged, they didn't know what to do, and God gave them another picture of himself, that of him being compassionate, that of him being kind and gentle, and treating a wrongdoer in a way they're not worthy of being treated. And the people 
are going to respond to that. There's a description of what that's like. It's given to us in the Bible. Let's go to Psalm 103, and this will be our last passage today. Psalm 103, and the merciful character of God is described. We begin with verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Can it be we will never understand mercy, we will never understand grace, we will never understand forgiveness until we sense on some level God's anger? It goes on. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He made us. So we find a pattern in the scriptures. The pattern is of a holy, almighty, all-powerful God who is very intimate with man. And we find a pattern in the scriptures that the merciful characteristics of God are not understood nor are they appreciated until someone has come up against his holy anger towards sin. And what is one to do? What will the Israelites do in the days of Moses? They'll return to the Lord in gratefulness that they're being forgiven. What did they do in the days of Hezekiah? They returned to the Lord with a spirit of gratefulness because of his mercy. In the book of Romans, it says it's the kindness or the goodness of God that brings repentance. That God would forgive us for all that we've done. That's what brings true repentance. What can a nation do when it's in trouble? It can return to God. What can an individual do when they're in trouble? They can return to God. I am not a prophet, but I'm going to make a prediction based on my understanding of Scripture at this point. Before, before there is a revival of any greatness and effect across our land, God in some way and in some somehow is going to manifest his power and his holiness and the, the reality that people are going to have to answer for their lives. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I believe he's going to do it. And when he does it, people will start wanting something they don't even care about now. They will want his mercy. They will want his goodness. They will want his forgiveness. And maybe... You're right there today. 
Maybe you are recognizing in your life that you're going to have to answer for your life and frankly, you don't like what's going on with your life. But God is going to hold you accountable for it. And maybe this simple message about justice and mercy has touched you. And you would like to say to the Lord, I want your mercy in my life, Lord. I covet it now more than ever before. And so my question is this, if there's anyone here who would like to say to the Lord, Lord, I want your mercy in my life. I want your intimacy in my life. I want your tenderness in my life. I am returning to you, Lord. Please return to me. If you want to say that to the Lord, I invite you to stand. Father in heaven, you are faithful in every way. You are faithful in your word. You are faithful in our lives. You have promised to forgive us and to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Lord, thank you for your mercy. We embrace it today and we ask for it in our lives. And we pray for our children, our family members, our loved ones, and our friends. Lord, show them your holiness. Show them your perfection. Show them your power that we may help them understand your mercy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.